Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Andrea Pearson. This week, we're going to have a pretty good show for you, I think. We're going to be talking all about the great stuff Andrea learned as an instructor and attendee, attendee, words are hard, at Chris Catherine Rush and Dean Wesley Smith's annual business masterclass for authors. Uh, and it was, you know, like a week-long class all about the long-term business strategies for writers and independent publishers. Joe and I weren't there, although we did actually go a couple years ago. Uh, so we'll be asking Andrea the questions. And we're going to be covering today kind of like how to think like a business, uh, marketing on a budget, when it makes sense to hire help, and just quite a few other tips from the class. And we're going to be dividing this into two episodes again, since as always, we had lots of questions when we were <laughs> looking over Andrea's notes. So hopefully you guys will find the information useful. Before we jump in, would you guys like to share any news or update folks on uh, what you've been doing this last week or two? Yeah, um, I'm coming off the business class, mass, business masterclass high. Um, it's, it's always like a kind of a rush to go to these kinds of conferences because you get so many ideas on what you should be doing and what you could be doing. And um, the biggest purpose, I mean, the biggest thing they always emphasize is you have to decide what's the most important. And so I've just, I'm trying to focus on writing. Um, I've been digging into edits on Evening Storm, which is the second book in my, my Midnight Chronicles. And I just finished the last book in my Silver Assassin series, which is a Patreon um, only series. I'm going to be sending that to my readers. Um, but I'm trying to, I'm honestly trying to simplify, but I've been adding new things. I've got a couple of stuff that I can announce in the future, but that are in, in kind of in the works right now, but nothing super tangible just yet. They involve audiobooks though. <laughs> and they involve somebody wanting to produce them for me. <laughs> That's always a plus. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> somebody else pays. <laughs> uh, as for me, it's NaNoWriMo. Uh, I have made it a point ever since I think 2012 to, to try to do an NaNoWriMo project and it typically ends up being a full novel release. So this time I'm doing Book of Deacon 6 uh, and because the NaNoWriMo word count is like 1700 words, which is a little more than half of what I, my old average was, just doing the NaNoWriMo thing seems silly. So I, I went from doing 3000 to 5000 per day, which puts me more in the ballpark of what the, what the two of you do, but you know, almost twice what I was doing before. So hopefully I can get used to that and I'll just be the new normal. Uh, I also am considering uh, the first release from my Patreon short stories. I had said way back when I started my Patreon for the people who I knew were not going to be supporting the Patreon, eventually all the stuff will find its way into the world. And the stuff that's within series will be parts of the collection whenever the collection comes out. So books, you know, four, five, six, or, or uh, however it works out, I'll throw in all the shorts that were associated as well. But the ones that are standalones that are just on Patreon, I'm thinking I'm finally going to wrap them up and make their own because there's probably about 80,000 words worth of short stories and novellas that are not associated with anything else. So uh, they're not exactly easy to market, but it's another release in, in a year. All I gotta do is throw a, a cover on it. They're already edited and all that. I've sort of already made my money. So those are the things that I'm working on now. Uh, uh, yeah. All right. I'm uh, not doing NaNoWriMo, really. I stopped a few years ago, at least as far as like being on the site and having writing buddies and filling out the chart. When I started writing like five, 10,000 words a day, it, it seemed like 
nobody really wants to see your writing buddy do that when you're just like stoked to get your 1667 or whatever. I know there are non-professional writers that do the 50,000 words in like the first 24 hours, but uh, I, I am writing a new book. I actually just finished, uh, sent book one in what will be my 2020 urban fantasy series off to beta readers and I've outlined two and I'm kind of having some admin days right here, but I'm going to start writing on Wednesday. Um, I won't be able to do, do straight through to the end on that one because I'm heading off to the 20 books to 50k conference this next Monday. And I'll be on four panels there if you're coming, which you probably are because I think like a thousand people are coming, which has to be at least half of the self-published authors out there that are really into this stuff. And if you're not coming, though, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit and give some tips. And I know they record a lot of the sessions and put them up on YouTube. And I'll be on the panels, High Powered Authors, Space Opera, Fantasy, and a 745 one that I'm not sure how I said yes to this on a crowdfunding, Patreon, and Kickstarter, especially since it's the night after uh, Jasmine Walt hosts a fantasy author party. And I remember drinking a lot of wine at it last year and getting back not at an early hour. So I should be really coherent for that panel. Most um, of my other news I thought you might be interested in is um, thanks to a tip uh, from Nathan Van Koops on his podcast, Book Faces. And I, this was something he got from somebody at Nink was that he mentioned that the Chase Inc. business preferred credit card gives you three points for every dollar you spend on social media advertising um, in addition to whatever money back, cash back and stuff they do. So I was kind of looking into that and thinking about applying for it. Um, I currently have a, my business card is just like a general 2% cash back. And the reason I thought I'd just bring this up because you might be interested in applying to it, applying for it. And if you're sort of new at spending, you know, like a bunch of money on advertising and that kind of stuff, definitely get a business uh, credit card if you haven't already. Um, even if you're like a sole proprietor, you can apply for most of these. They're kind of you know, for small business people. So um, you ch double check, but you don't necessarily have to be like an LLC or anything yet to apply. And yeah, as long as you're spending money for your business, you might as well get some cash back or some, you know, travel perks. I, I kind of like just the cash back stuff. Um, do you guys have business cards and what do you go for? I don't like the complicated, like I got to figure out what three points is even worth. I did look it up. It was about 50,000 points were worth about $950. So there's that. <laughs> Um, I just recently uh, switched my card around. It's not a business. I have a business card, but there's no perks on it. It's just associated with my PayPal. Originally, that was just a bookkeeping measure, but I've since basically moved all of my purchases over to my main credit card, which was just restructured to have cash back with an optional like 3% cash back on a thing that you choose at the beginning of the month. So like, if I'm going to have a big trip, I can put it toward hotel or airfare like that. So it's not specifically geared toward business, but I'm able to sort of which way it toward what my expenses are going to be in a given month. So that, that's as close as I've gotten. And I'm actually one of those, I don't have credit cards <laughs> people. Um, I haven't had one since I was 18. So I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not in their target audience. <laughs> I well, do like cash back, but I've never actually, you know, looked into it or <laughs> well you certainly don't have to but um i, I i'm a i spend I a lot of money on advertising so yeah. well see that's what i do that's why i have it is because everything i spend i might as well be getting perks and i pay it off every month so i don't actually lose money that that's i mean no I that's exactly. saying, but i know that people will be like what um you know if, if, as long as you're cash flow positive from your author business and can pay it off every month 
um, then you're not giving them any money. Yeah. And that's like I said, I spend a lot of money on social media advertising. So that's something I might look into. I mean, it's like they're rewarding you for giving money to Facebook and that would be okay with me. <laughs> yeah. That's why that one, that's the only one. Cause I looked at several of them and that was the only one that specifically mentioned like social media advertising. And I, if Amazon is in there too, uh, that would be, <laughs> that's why I'm starting to spend a lot of money on this stuff. So you might as well, you know, you can get some free money out of it. But all right, let's move into the meat of the show where we're going to be asking questions for Andrea all about what she learned at the podcast, the podcast, the conference slash workshop, whatever we're calling it this week. Um, so I guess first off, um, I think most people in the community kind of familiar with Chris and Dean because they both blog and, you know, they get linked to a lot. Um, they've been in the business since the 80s, you know, and done a lot of traditional publishing. I think they're kind of have their own publishing business and manage their own stuff now. They definitely are long-term thinkers. Uh, do you want to talk about sort of what was the overall focus for the conference? Yeah, um, it was definitely licensing. And, and they weren't shy about that in the, on their podcasts or their blogs. Um, ahead of time, but so they they talked quite a bit about how authors need to uh, shift their thinking from everything revolving around a book to everything revolving around an idea instead with a book being one possible piece of the pie. Um, and so they focus on di diversification and having multiple streams of income instead of just one. So a book or the idea can have a book, it can have audiobooks, print, and more than one type, it can have videos, movies, podcasts, games, tons of merchandise, etc and then being available in multiple different locations. And so that was pretty much the focus. It was just diversification and licensing. I know that um, Chris had gone to that. I think they both went to that big licensing expo like in May in Vegas. And she's been, I think she's done like 14 blog posts at this point. So I could tell she's a little excited about it. So I'm wondering though, as you know, most of us authors think, well, of course we can get our audiobooks done. We can get our books done you know, maybe if we're lucky someday, Hollywood would be interested or, you know, now Audible is sometimes doing offers for authors, author, offers for authors to pick them up for like their Audible first kind of stuff. This sounds like it goes way beyond that. So what are some of the things that they believe we should be trying to like make deals and get our stuff licensed for? Um, there's a lot of different things. Uh, they, they had Lauren Coleman there and he does, I mean, he's the owner of Catalyst Game Labs and he publishes for Battle, um, Battletech and Shadowrun and all these things that I wasn't terribly familiar with. But once I mentioned them to my husband, he was like, oh yeah. <laughs> and he, we're going to actually have him on. Um, he's, con he's confirmed yes. So he, we're going to bring him onto the podcast in the next while. I'm not sure when, but he'll talk all about that stuff. There's so much. I mean, there's so much when it comes to even just gaming that authors can be doing. And while I was sitting there during all these little things, I was like, Lindsay, this is for you. And I even put that in my notes during the workshop. Um, but um, let's see. So Chris specifically, she talked quite a bit about about how there's three different types of writers and she broke it down into what they are and then told us which one we should be so that we can be taking advantage of these types of licensing things. But basically the three types of writers are there's first the traditionally published writer and then the second a day job writer and then third the business minded writer and traditionally published writer is basically someone who's choosing and this is these are her words choosing not to make money with their books. And it's because their publisher pretty much owns everything. Um, they own all of it, all of the licensing, the copyright, the rights, everything, everything that's in the contract they own. 
And even if they don't choose to exploit those rights, they, they own them. And so you're not, you're seriously limiting yourself if you choose to be a traditionally published author. Um, and she basically said that you're choosing to be a professor or something else for the rest of your life because traditionally published authors have to have another source of income, almost always. And then, okay, so then the day job writer is someone who has to work, 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 work all the time. And they have to rapidly release, re- release rapidly. Um, they're unable to relax because everything falls apart when they do. And she says, if you write at this speed, you will burn out in five to 10 years. But she did make a point, And I thought this was, I was so glad that she made this point. She said that you absolutely have to be the day job writer at first until you have a large catalog of books. Because if you don't have a large catalog of books, you're not going to go anywhere as a business author, um, the business minded writer and the business minded writer, somebody who thinks about their, their books as IP and they license bits and pieces of that everywhere. And they figure out basically every aspect of their books that can make them money and they exploit that. Um, they're consistently and continually growing and changing and finding new ways to make money. And she says that being a business minded writer is how you sustain your career. Um, and then around there at this point, Dean actually made a comment about how when he first, uh, when he first decided he wanted to indie publish, when it became a thing, he didn't actually own the rights to any of his books. And um, so he started from zero apart from having a name established and experienced writing but he did what he called stealth publishing where he wrote and stealth published and didn't promote anything until he had around a hundred books published. It took him about seven years. Uh, but then once he was ready to get, you know, ready to start promoting and marketing, he had this huge backlist or backlog of, of books. And so he is a, they're both obviously business minded writers. And so they're talking about how, how these, you've got to get a whole ton of books out. And then once you've got a lot of books out, you've got to gradually slide and and slip into being the business minded writer where you take those books and you diversify them. You get, you, you sell out the license and you, and you, and you find ways to make different, different monies, (laughs) different monies, meaning all sorts of different cultures and countries and literally pretty much. (laughs) Uh, All right. So, um, Lindsay talked about this a little bit, like as, as authors, we're pretty familiar with, with, with licensing stuff like audio book rights and translation rights. Uh, they're directly related to the literary business and it's not outside the realm of possibility for the circle of friends and, and networking that you already have to develop contacts that might get you noticed from people who are going to do translations or audiobooks. It happened to me, therefore it can't be that unusual. But like what other licensing opportunities are looking for? Like you mentioned games, uh, but like what else, what else is there? And how do we find these people to license? Um, as to how to find them, go to the licensing expo and do it now before all the indie authors are going to the licensing expo. Because <laughs> that's one thing that I think we've been in the in this indie business long enough to know that when something works, everybody jumps onto it. Um, so like I said, definitely games, pretty much any fictional idea and even a lot of the nonfiction ones can be turned into a game. Um, but merchandise, uh, I can't remember who said it, but at one point during the conference or the workshop or whatever, someone said that you shouldn't merchandise your series names, the book titles, things like that, character names, anything like that. You should merchandise things that characters in your book would want to wear. So like a shirt, um, if you guys read Mercy Thompson, Patricia Briggs, either of you, Okay. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay's not. <laughs> yes. I am nodding for the people who are listening along and cannot. <laughs> yeah. So she's merchandised the word nudge. Um, I don't know if you remember that from, from Mercy Thompson books, but the word nudge is on shirts. It's on cups. It's on things like that. And that's because that's a mercy thing. Mercy, you know, use the word nudge. 
And so they would actually, like they would say, I belong to Gryffindor instead of I love Harry Potter. And so they talked about how that is a much more powerful way to merchandise than than a series name that doesn't mean anything to anybody. So like readers, they want to show what they're proud of. And they're generally proud of things that characters are proud of too. And then, yeah, like I said, so attend the licensing expo um, and pursuing the rights and things like that. Um, They did a lot of role-playing where if you go to the licensing expo, they make appointments with people there who buy licenses. You, You can know how to approach them and how to ask them questions and what questions specifically you should be asking. And we're going to see if we can get on one of their license, one of the licensing expo people, um, hopefully to be able to come and give us a lot more detail on that because it was incredibly dense. They had a quite a bit of a focus on it. So I think I was going to ask this later in my notes here, but um, since we're talking about it now, and I think people will be curious, how big of a seller do you have to be before you become of interest to these people? And do you have to like keep the book selling for years and years and years, which is kind of hard for me as someone who like jumps to a new series. And then, you know, you do a few promos now and then for the old series, but it's not like it's selling gangbusters anymore. So I think, yeah, I would love to hear (laughs) what they said. I'm sure somebody there asked that question. So, um, not, I mean, they did talk about it, but they didn't give hard numbers. Um, I think what it was, was they, it's kind of like a case by case thing. So Lindsay, you would definitely be applicable. So would Joe, both of you guys have had a solid sales, solid downloads and, um, like the book of Deacon, there's probably 50,000 ways to merchandise and to do whatever with that whole entire, um, uh, universe that you've created there, Joe. Um, but like, so they're talking, I don't know, kind of the impression that I got was if you qualify for Nink, you probably qualify or would att- attract attention from somebody licensing. And they actually made this point multiple times in the conference, licensing people, like the people, the licensing expo, they're not like Hollywood. Hollywood will exploit everything. They will take advantage of you and they'll, they're not they're not honest. I mean, they talked about this in every single business masterclass I've attended, how people in Hollywood, they try to come out on top. But uh, the licensing expo people, the ones that want to buy your licenses to help you, you know, reach, you know, merchandise and things like that, they're, they're looking for more of a, of a, um, of an equal opportunity where everybody benefits the same. And so they're, they're a lot more easy to approach. They're a lot more, they're nicer. Um, let's see. I think that pretty much answers your question. I'm, I think. <laughs> so the answer is go to the licensing expo and nudge people and uh, <laughs> network, figure out how to, uh, to actually talk to people. I'm going to have to take you with me. Uh, you, you talk I can for me. totally sell you for you. <laughs> yes. And then when you need me, I'll just be like, I will nod and give a thumbs up and be your yeah. wing woman. There we go. <laughs> All right. So I know that they are both kind of into long-term thinking and I don't think they have any stuff in KU or they're, you know, they're very, I feel like they've been vocal against exclusivity with Amazon. That's, that's really the problem. I don't think anybody objects to the subscription model. That's just a thing now. That's how it is. Did you, you know, what were their thoughts on with business thinking and thinking long-term, I guess what, you know, licensing could be a long-term thing. What else did they have to say about, like how we can be <laughs> business-minded authors instead of just writing the next book and series. Um, yeah, I, that's it's recognizing when there's an opportunity out there that you can take advantage of, knowing when it's time. 
Um, I don't, I'm honestly not sure, like with my own life, you know, I've, I had opportunities come up at the conference that I'm going to take advantage of because it would be stupid not to. Um, but I mean, where it comes to KU, you're right there. Neither of them are okay with that. And it is the exclusivity thing. You know, they would, they would be totally okay with Kindle Unlimited if it, if it weren't, did not require exclusivity. Um, for me, I just, I feel like it's some, it's important to have something available for everyone everywhere. Um, and that includes licensing. Some people won't, they won't ever read a book, but they will play games. And so if you have something somewhere for everybody, then you're um, much more of a business minded author and you're in those streams of income and things like that. And we're going to have Joanna Penn on the podcast and um, I know she's going to hear this. So Joanna, we're going to want you to talk about those 200 streams of income that you talked about in the conference, <laughs> just an FYI, because that's fantastic. Um, but yeah, so just making sure that you, you keep track of what all the possibilities are. And they did this little bubble chart, you know, so Dean put together ideas, like I'm showing for the people watching who aren't watching because they are listening, <laughs> but you've got your idea. And then that branches off into all the different little areas. And once you get to the point where, you know, you're ready to slip into the business minded author, start seeking out, you know, going down those different avenues. Um, one thing they did I, did, I should mention here that Chris did mention was that don't ho approach Hollywood. They will take advantage of you if you approach them. You wait for them to come to you because they, and they will come if you get big enough. And, and so there you go. <laughs> That's a graceful ending to my answer to your question. <laughs> no problem. Uh, I appreciate the bubble. Now, now, now that I've seen the hand gestures, I can imagine the bubble. <laughs> um, I would just point out from my own point of view for those listening, which would be everybody that's out there listening, that I do some books in KU, but I also consider myself long-term thinker. You know, I'm kind of like, well, this audiobook will pay for itself eventually. It's going to be out there forever. And I'm always listening to what people are doing. So I, I believe in, you know, doing some long-term stuff and I love diversifying income. I, I've said before that I was really excited when I got to the point where, like, even though I'm doing some stuff exclusive with Amazon and even though Amazon's most of my income, when I got to the point where like Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Google Play and the other sites, uh, but like enough to live on and pay all the bills and stuff, that was cool. So I was like, I don't feel completely reliant on Amazon, which is you know, your relationship with them, I think is a little healthier when <laughs> they just don't have all the cards. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, it's, I, I kind of like Amazon, you know, they favor new um, releases. And so one thing that I was saying in all those little marketing chats I was doing is why not take advantage of them, you know, take as much money from them as possible before you go wide. And so I don't, I don't know. I, I do, I don't like exclusivity. I don't really like Kindle Unlimited, but I do like money. And so if you're keeping things just going, so, you know, um, the diversification and then the wide, the, and the different retailers and things like that. All right. So uh, the next section we're going to talk about here is sustainability uh, and focus on being business minded. Um, so one of the, I was obviously looking at notes. All these are based on notes, everyone. It's not spontaneous. And uh, uh, the notes mention a surprisingly pragmatic view toward lawsuits and whether or not they're worth pursuing. So like, what might someone decide, what might make someone decide not to pursue a valid legal claim? Um, okay, so this was something that I just, it just made me so, so happy that they talked about because this is a huge issue, I feel, in the, in the publishing world in general. Um, Kevin talked about how he'd, he'd pursued lawsuits twice and they were 
totally legitimate, totally um, valid claims, and they won them. But he said that overall they lost because they lost so much time in fighting those legal battles. And so Chris, her view on this, where lawsuits were concerned, is how much do you gain by pursuing them? And how many books do you lose by pursuing them? So basically, what are you sacrificing in your quest to feel justified or or vindicated? Um, She basically said that no lawsuit is worth pursuing because all of them still from your future and your ability to provide for yourself in the future. Um, she was said that they're looking in the past. So looking at things that have happened in the past and trying to make things better in the past. And, um, I used to be a paralegal. Did I already say that? I can't remember, but I used to be a paralegal. I worked as one for a couple of years and I, I agree with that. I saw a lot of people allowing lawsuits to completely ruin their lives. And unfortunately, most of them didn't recognize that that was what was happening. And even when they won, they didn't feel that sense of release or relief or vindication because they spent so much time on it. And that brief little win just did not make it worth um, the effort and the time that they put into it. And so that's, pretty much everybody there who had been involved in a lawsuit said, don't do it. It's not worth it. It might make you feel good, but it ruins um, a lot of your productivity for, for years because they do drag out for years. That makes an ex- uh, a lot of sense. Uh, all right. So I know that typically, like I typically consider sustainability uh, as like a way of finding t- a way. <laughs> sustainability is about finding a way to make sure that what I'm doing is working, at least in my head. But it seemed like there was a case made for shedding the parts of your business that aren't sustainable. Yeah, they talked about that quite a bit. Uh, For example, Dean and Chris used to own four physical bookstores in Oregon. And they... So they talked about Pulp House, how they ran Pulp House. And Pulp House became a leak in their business where... Excuse me, where it wasn't making them money. And it took them a long time to find that. And so they they finally closed it down and they had to lay off a lot of employees. They lost, they ended up shouldering, I think they said like $500,000 um, in debt in the end. And that when their physical stores, when they, when Allison, the, um, the woman who helps them run their business, when she showed them the numbers for their physical stores that they weren't sustaining, um, a, they weren't basically making enough money. Uh, they decided to shut them down immediately because they've experienced that slow leak. And so so sustainability, finding a way to make sure what you're doing is working, it's, it's, that's very important. So you need to find ways to make money, but ha- don't have too much of a pull on other things. And so if it's taking too much time or resources, including time that your assistants put in, um, how much of a profit are they bringing in, all things considered? Uh, so it's important for your business to be able to sustain itself if you get sick or something happens. Um, because if you're in the day job, writer position, the minute you stop writing, your business will start tanking. And so they talked about how you need to focus on creating multiple streams of income to keep things afloat if anything happens, because that's where the sustainability comes from. Yeah. And it's, it's, I've seen it where authors will have like really good, amazing years, especially when, if it's early on and they just think this, it's always going to be like this. And then you're like excited, well, I'm going to hire three assistants and then we're going to start doing this and this and, you know, start all this. And then if the money goes away, you can be in trouble. So it definitely makes sense to kind of pay attention, whether it's time or money, you know, like if you start some Facebook reader group, and you realize you're sinking 10 hours into it a week to talk to people and you know are you actually selling more books as a result of that is something to consider uh you know if you're doing that and you love doing that by all means do that but uh, you know if you feel like oh my gosh it's this thing and i have to do it and it's sucking up time you could use for writing and i think uh, that's something to consider 
um, you know, they kind of, it sounds like they've talked about having ups and downs of which they must've seen a lot of in, in 30 odd years in the publishing industry. And I've even seen a lot of folks that just like you're reading their books along and then they disappear for three years and, you know, later they come back and they're like, well, something happened and like this happened in life and they're trying to get restarted again. Do they have any tips for, you know, I guess being resilient as well as uh, having a sustainable business model? Um, they didn't address that part as much as they did um, address the fact that everyone crashes at some point and they asked all of the big authors who were there how many times they'd had, cra had, had crashed. Every single one of them has been two, three, four times and they talked about author friends who weren't there who had crashes. And, but they talked about how, like what you said, people on the outside rarely notice when something actually happens and so people will well, you notice three years, but if like their example was six months, say you stop writing for six months, the chances of somebody noticing is very slim, especially now with things moving so quickly, you'll have readers who will notice. Um, but a lot of like, you won't have authors noticing most of the authors out there won't even recognize when an author friend stops producing, they just stop and then they come back and they're like, Oh yeah. Hi, how are you doing? You know? And so they talked about how, um, so basically, I would assume that what they would say is just, I mean, if you're doing what you you love doing and you're passionate about it, then those burnouts don't happen as often. But if you are, um, if you are diversified and you do have multiple streams of income, you won't be affected as heavily when those, when those crashes do happen. One thing about finishing a series and, you know, or multiple series and having a backlist is then even if something happens and you can't write, well, maybe you can still go over to BookBub or, you know, free booksy and plug in and try to get a promo and, you know, having the backlist out there or products, as you would call them in a business world, at least gives you something to continue to sell. Um, you know, and I know a lot of creative, you know, authors and creatives, artists of all kinds, we, we're often introverts, we often don't really want to, we're happier living in our own world than dealing with the real world. And it can be a real struggle to accept it like, oh, I am a business now, I'm producing cogs, <laughs> you know, not like this wonderful art alone. Did they have any suggestions? Because I, I struggle with this too. Like I just, I would be very happy to just write stories and you know, I'm always envious when somebody like um, on our old show, we had Michael J. Sullivan and his wife, Robin Sullivan on, and he did all the writing and uh, she did all the business stuff and everybody's like, oh my gosh, I want that relationship too. I want a, a spouse or, you know, a kid or a sister or something that just loves that stuff. But that's the reality is most of us are struggling and, and kind of doing it ourselves, especially the high level thing that you can't necessarily just hire an assistant to help with. Uh, do they have any tips for? Um, becoming more business-minded and uh, learning to enjoy it. Um, they didn't talk about how to enjoy it. Uh, one thing, <laughs> Lindsay laughed. One thing uh, Dean said is, if you're not enjoying it, why are you doing it? I mean, because a writer, this is the most fun job in the world. You get to create stories and worlds. And uh, But they talked about how you need to start thinking about yourself as a business that will be acquired someday because someday it will, you have descendants or you have somebody, you should have a will where somebody will be taking over the, your entire empire that you've created. And so, and they also talked about how you shouldn't get ahead of the money. So don't spend yourself into an easier career. And they talked about this quite a bit. Um, Lindsay, you've made this comment before how some people will put 90% of the royalties they make into selling books. And they're like, look how many books I sold, but all of their royalties are going into advertising. And so they, they're talking about how that's not sustainable, how you need to be, you need to be making sure that your business is something that can be passed on, you know, and that it's, um, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I enjoy the marketing side. I enjoy the business side of things, but I prefer the writing side. And so I just think, yeah, you just eventually reach a point where you have to buckle down and do it. But again, like what Dean was saying, he didn't do that until he had a hundred books out, you know? So like a lot of our listeners don't have a hundred books out. <laughs> I would say relax <laughs> and just enjoy writing until you are in a position where you, you can, you know, start pushing hard and start marketing and things like that. And, and just in the meantime, just be open to the idea of licensing, be open to the idea of, you know, eventually needing to branch into other things. And eventually you will get to the point where you're ready to take those kinds of things on. Now, uh, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to comment on um, keeping up with the Joneses. You know, it's so easy to see everybody's sales rankings these days. And, uh, you know, there's posts on Facebook. I, I made this much. I made this much. And, you know, I have to remind myself, you know, don't worry about it. It's okay that these other people are making more. They might be spending tons on advertising. They may not. You know, I'm doing well and it's fine. I'm reaching my goals. So there's nothing wrong with having motivation, but I, I agree. Be really careful about like, oh, this is, I'm going to put 20000 on my new business credit card this month for Facebook ads, unless you're making 200000 that month. So it's no big deal. And you know, you can pay that, pay it off every month like we were talking about. Go ahead, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the notes, there's a, there's a bit that I found encouraging, which is the claim that the only way you're, you'll make it is to do it your way. Uh, could, could you expand on that? Yeah. So, um, I, I, I do remember hearing that, but I don't remember exactly what they talked about. Again, it's that flood of information, the fire hydrant. But if you're chasing every rabbit you hear about, like listening to this podcast and saying, oh, I need to be doing games. I need to be doing audio. I need to be doing Hollywood. I need to be doing movies and videos. Then you're just, you're going to be um, stretching, stretching yourself too thin. And so you should be focusing on long-term successful things that you love to do the way you love to do them. Uh, with an eye for business, of course, since not all business models succeed long term, but burnouts and crashes happen when we're trying to make ourselves into somebody else. Um, be, and every road, we've heard this before, every road to success is different. And so if you're focusing on doing it in a way that you enjoy doing it, and which is your way, quote unquote, then you'll have less of the likelihood that you'll burn out. Though, like they said, burnouts do happen. Did they happen to mention, and uh, this will be for the U.S. listeners, in the U.S. it's rather confusing with how many corporation kind of businesses you can create, you know, S-Corp, C-Corp, LLC, you can stay a sole proprietor for however long you want if you want to. There's uh, obviously some perks for, you know, going beyond that. Did they make suggestions for authors that, let's just say, listening to this, you're planning, you either are a six-figure author or you're have, you know, that's your goal and you want to be well set up for when you get there. So Dean recommends that once you start making money, you form a C Corp. And he said, it's basically the only thing you should do. He, he, um, ragged on LLCs for quite some time, which I was like, why weren't you around, you know, 10 years ago when I formed my LLC. <laughs> but, um, once you start making money, you should form a C Corp and because they protect your money. It's what, and that's what he and Chris and the other authors from what I could tell have done. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that's good to know. I remember from the one we were, we went to a couple of years ago, there was an enormous amount of stuff you can do through a C Corp that you couldn't do elsewhere. Um, there was a, uh, there was some talk about return on investment and, uh, focusing on things with tangible return on investment. So I guess what I would wonder is about is like, where, what's the focus on return on investment and, and how does one recognize something with a worthwhile ROI? 
Yeah. So Chris mentioned several times again, that, that you need to have multiple streams of income and that's better than having one big stream of income. What it, boils down to basically is resources. So how much time and money is something requiring? If it takes a lot of time, but it only makes a little bit of money, it's probably not worth it. And likewise, if it takes a lot of money and not a little, and it only requires a little bit of time, but it's not getting you money in return, again, it's not worth it. So focusing on diversification and finding time and on, and finding those time leaks and the money leaks and eliminating them is what they talked about when it comes to finding an ROI. And sometimes you just have to experiment. You're not going to know if something's going to have a good ROI until you put time and money into it. This is why I always default to going back to working on the next book, because I know how much I can make from launching a new series and like a, three books right back to back versus it's so much more than anything else I can do, like putting out an audio book. So everything else I do it, but it goes on the to-do list and it's a much more gradual, you know, the reason my website still hasn't been updated is like, it will not make me any money. You know, it would be helpful to the readers and I want to do it and I want to make it better. Eventually I've actually had a couple designs I've not liked. So still uh, going to get that done. But you know, I, I'm a big fan of like focusing on the thing that is kind of proven to make money. Um, you mentioned, or he mentioned these leaks in poker terms. I was just kind of curious about that. I'm not a poker player, but I know Dean was like on the circuit. We probably saw him on ESPN back in the day when there was only one ESPN. Yeah, he's a professional poker player, which is kind of cool. Um, and he made a point about that, that he's a professional poker player. He is not a gambler. And he made that point multiple times. Um, but he said that when he had one of his crashes, he decided to go off and go play poker instead. And he was talking about how um, a lot of po professional poker players need sponsors despite making millions. He said millions and millions off of their poker games. And he says it's because they gamble. So like while they're waiting for the next game to start, they'll go and hit the slots. And he says they lose all of their money that way and they don't even recognize it because it's a leak. And so, so he said, um, he says that he, he plays professional poker player, like I said, but he doesn't gamble because it, it would lose everything that he earned. Um, and so so that leak, so finding the leak, and then that's how all of that leaking in poker player playing, and he totally looks like a poker player. He's totally legit. <laughs> he does. He can just pull the hat low and like they can't see his eyes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, let's move on. I know um, Mark Lefebvre and Damon Courtney from Draft Digital and Book Funnel, respectively, were there. Uh, you know, these guys were at Nink too, and we talked a little bit about stuff they've been doing, but did you want to touch on what they talked about? Um, these are both services that we like <laughs> as authors and that many of you probably already use. So uh, updates? Yeah. So Mark talked about how Google Play and why they decided to pull the plug there. He said that basically Google Play was making things absolutely impossible for authors and for draft to digital. They were requiring authors to have an account with Google Play, which, you know, when you use a, a distributor, you don't have to have an account with that, just with the person they're distributing to. So I don't have an account on OverDrive, you know, but they were requiring authors to go and create accounts. And then half the time they won't even let authors create accounts. And so they're, they're just too many hoops for them to jump through. And so he said that his point was that draft digital always makes serving the author a priority. Um, they now offer aud audiobook links through books to read which is run by draft digital I thought that was, that was really cool. So they're constantly trying to find ways to improve the services that they offer. And that's the same way, same with book funnel, uh, book funnel now has the, op the ability to share up to two hours of audio. Uh, this was really big to me because I'm just starting to dip my toe into, into audio. 
Um, but authors, it allows authors to offer custom samples instead of random samples from Audible. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but when you go and listen to a sample, it's a random place. And so Damon was like talking how it would start into the, you know, this book is by so-and-so narrated by so-and-so dedicated to chapter one, end of sample. And so how that that removes, I mean, the, the whole purpose of having a sample, you can't actually sample it. And so book funnel, they, it allows authors to offer custom samples instead of the random samples from audible. And then also you can build a newsletter list of just audio listeners, the same way you would build a list of ebook readers. So you give them a reader magnet in exchange for a sign up. And that's pretty much what I got from both of them. That's cool. I, I remembered the, uh, they had announced the, uh, the audiobook for the universal links while we were at Nink, but it wasn't actually live yet. It, then it activated a couple of weeks ago, I think. So that's been one of those things that I've been doing in the cracks uh, in my day. Like, oh, let me add a few more audio links to try to update that. But um, so I saw there was some talk about libraries uh, with regard to direct to digital. Libraries are big in the in the uh, uh, publishing news right now because Macmillan has been having some shenanigans with their with their deals. So were there any bits about you know advice on getting your books into into library catalogs? Yeah, Mark talked about that for a little bit. Um, he did mention that originally Overdrive was the only, I mean, it was the main way to get into libraries and they had one system, but librarians started getting frustrated. And so they ended up splitting it into two because they had a hard time finding books that were good. And since everybody could be in, in the library system, there wasn't a lot of easy to find good books. And so they split it into two systems and librarians won't usually go to the system that has a self-published books in it. But Overdrive does have a page, an offer page thingy, whatever, where authors, all of the books an author has available is on listed on one single page. And so if you give that a link to that page to librarians, uh, they can order directly without having to search for you, you know, without having to go to that system and search for your name and have to go through everything there. And then also he said to have readers request your book so that librarians know there's a demand for them. Um, and then he, he talked about how readers in KU want free books, but a lot of readers want free books. They're basically some of the readers that only bought or only read through libraries. They went into the KU system, but they can still get free books in their libraries if you have your books available in Overdrive. All right, that's good to know. I, I've often wondered if uh, one of the reasons KU has been so popular is that libraries are so slow because they get like three, they buy three licenses for ebooks or whatever, so some popular ebook, and you have to wait eight weeks. To, and you're like, it's an ebook. Can't you just give me the file now? And they're like, no. So I wonder if a lot of the KU and library people do uh, overlap, as you were saying. Um, I just, I thought before we move on to, I wanted to mention as far as Google Play goes, um, they're actually going to be at the 20 books conference and I'm going to have a chance to chat with them. So I have a little list of questions to ask because uh, I know um, people are frustrated with them if they can't get in there and they've been closed for so much at the time. And I think even in, when they're open, it's been us only. So um, I will see what's going on because they, they are reaching out. So it seems like they do care about indie authors and hopefully it'll become easier. And if you can get in, I mean, they've become like my, they're either my number two or my number three. Uh, usually after Amazon and Barnes and Noble and ahead of Kobo and Apple for me, this last couple of years they've come on pretty strong. And I, I was asking in a Facebook group with some people that have wide stuff and they were like, yeah, Google Play's just kind of really come on the last couple of years. And if I think I mentioned in another episode, it's linked, it's the store that's linked to the Android phone and there's a lot of those. So it seems like the, it has some upside potential. So, you know, kind of keep an eye on that, I guess, if, you know, and wait and see if they let 
non-U.S. people in and, and also U.S. people who are, are not, you know, I don't know what exactly is the deal there. They've been up and down a lot over the years. Uh, and also a plug for audio on BookFunnel. It works. I just did my first audio file there. Uh, Podium Publishing is doing my Star Kingdom series, and they did one of the short story, bonus short stories I had for my newsletter and gave me the MP3s. And I was like, hey, can I share this to my Patreon people? And they're like, yeah, sure. So it was very easy to set up, and people could either stream it on BookFunnel or they could click to download the MP3 for themselves. All right, let's move on. You actually taught a marketing class and it looks like you covered tons of stuff. So we'll just, you know, take a couple of highlights uh, from the notes of what you covered. I, I was curious to start things out. You had mentioned um, as far as authors go and, and publishing that there will always be outliers, that you should plan your business on reality, not on outliers. And if you become an outlier, great. But if not, you'll be prepared. Can you share some more thoughts on that for our listeners? Yeah, um, you should never plan your business around being a bestseller or a big seller um, because you can't control that. You plan your business around things that you can actually control. And if your book ends up being a bestseller or a big seller or just goes huge in any way, then you're you're in a much better position. So your royalties will go up instead of having a huge spike that is impossible to replicate. Because if you're an outlier, you know some of those people that release, you know a trilogy that goes huge and they quit their day jobs and it's their first trilogy. They don't have anything for readers to read after that. So, and they also usually they can't replicate that. And so if you plan us your plan, your business around not being an outlier then, and make sure that everything it, that you you control is in place. So your covers are good. Your descriptions are good. The editing, et cetera. Um, and that you're producing a lot of books that meet that criteria. Uh, when something awesome happens, you'll be in a good position for that success to continue. So you won't be an overnight wonder who fades quickly. Um, and then again, if nothing exciting ever happens, you're still in a good place. That's uh, definitely true. I, I, I would say that the only reason I'm still in the business is because I, I, I never bulked up. I stayed lean even when the income was high so that when the income was low, I didn't have to change myself too much. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the value of reviews and if you have any tips on how to get more reviews? Okay. So reviews are super important. Um, this was the number one thing that people asked me in, in uh, down in Vegas. Um, and I did these little suites or we call them in the suite marketing chats where we would just get together and, and just chat marketing. And it was the number one question people asked, even authors who have a lot of books out was how to get reviews. Um, you can't get downloaded uh, without reviews. And I recommend authors have at least a hundred before they start promoting any given book. And the reason I recommend that is because I've noticed just from my own experience that it's hard to get readers to move on and download a book that has low numbers. And I'm not talking of like your current readers, even though those do apply as well. Sometimes even current readers are hesitant to try something new unless it's proven to be something that will be a valuable uh, way to spend their time. But also like re readers who don't know who you are, there's so many books out there who are, are, that, are, that are very well reviewed where if your book has 50 reviews or 10 reviews or five reviews, they'll just go to a different book that has more than that. And so um, I do, I mean, I have a course that talks about how to get reviews. Um, I, I don't know, we can plug that, I guess, but um, you can use your automation sequence and this leads, leads to a steady drip in reviews. Um, so for example, my book, Shade Amulet, I've been focusing on that one in my automation sequence for about a year now. And when I launched it, I got about 40, maybe 50 reviews from my, my review crew. 
And I've got the other 150 reviews through that steady drip campaign where I'm asking people, you know, if they would please um, post a review. And then also you can run giveaways where if they post a review, they get a bonus entry point. That giveaway has to be in order for it to be legal. It has to be eligible for anyone to join, but you can offer a bonus point for those who post a review. Um, and then also something that I talked about quite a bit, remember that reviews on your product page need to be five-star reviews. So if you've got 500 reviews, but all of the reviews on your product page on Amazon are one-star reviews, it's going to seriously damage your downloads. And so if they aren't, enlist the help of readers to go through and click helpful and five-star reviews that they actually find helpful. When I do this, I generally ask for readers who haven't actually read that book and I'll say, and I'll give them a link to the five-star reviews and I say, hey, go through. And if you find any of these reviews helpful, mark them helpful. And so that way they're marking helpful on helpful reviews. And so it's legitimate and it's honest, but they're also being exposed to my more enthusiastic readers. And so it leads to them being more likely to actually read a book. So I will say for myself, this may be a point where we differ a little bit. I will never ask readers to do anything in regards to the reviews that are up there. I feel that's kind of a fine line. Uh, just that's how I feel personally. I don't want to do anything that could be perceived as manipulating the reviews. I hate the one-star reviews as much as anyone else. Um, but I, I see authors doing that and I do wonder a little bit like for me, I, I probably wouldn't do that. Um, but you know, whatever, I understand why, why you would want to do that too. I've seen people right out of the gate, they get like a one star review. And if you've only got five reviews at that point, so that really tanks things. Uh, but even though I don't do it, Oh, go ahead. You want to oh, talk no, I was back just on that? Actually, <laughs> actually um, Mark um, from Kobo actually commented on that. If you get a one-star review right out the gate, he says that people will download a book with one, a one, one-star review over a book that has zero reviews because it shows that somebody somewhere actually read that book. And so re negative reviews aren't something to be afraid of, you know? I do feel we worry about it probably more than anybody else does, but there, you know, there, I understand why too. You can feel like that way, but I just don't look at them. <laughs> and that's that's one way not to be tempted to into to anything. Um, but I, I have seen. I'm going to shout out Anna Hackett. I think she's great about doing like a review team. You know, she's got whatever 200, 300 people that she sends early copies out to. Uh, we had her on the our old show. She does mostly sci-fi romance. I think she's done some other romance stuff too. But, you know, you'll see. She releases a new book and it's like, boom, day one, 100 reviews. You know, and they're mostly four and five stars because they're her, you know, her biggest fans. And, they're, you know, I um, stopped doing this because it's, it's actually a lot of work to organize that and then follow up. And, you know, and I, I found that I can just ask for reviews at the end of the book. And I, I'll sell enough copies to get reviews that way now. But I, I, that's fine. If you want to do the work, that's awesome. I mean, that cannot hurt. She can go out and get any promo, you know, on day one because she's got all those reviews. And, you know, whereas if you launch normally without any reviews, you're going to have a few days before stuff starts to trickle in. And, and maybe that will have an effect. So there's certainly nothing wrong with having the street team, as you might call it, or ARC team. Uh, that you know goes out there as long as you're asking for honest reviews and you're not like saying oh you have to do only four and five star reviews to be on my team yeah i've had a member of my my review crew um actually i mean i've actually had several members give me bad reviews but one of them said i recommend all of andrea's books except this one and she named it in the review and it was on a positive review for a different book and that just kind of made me chuckle i screenshot it <laughs> Well, and I've had people, because uh, when you do different genres too, that can be problematic. You might want two different street teams because I've had people that are like, I love your fantasy. Your sci-fi is so boring. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, sorry. They're kind of the same things. They're just in space. But if that's, that's not hilarious. your thing, I understand. 
Um, you know, on our old show, uh, people always liked when we talked about mistakes we'd made or, or things we've learned for, and, you know, from our past stuff. So I was curious, uh, you were talking about, I'll say it long, the Key of Kailina series uh, and what you learned from that as far as the marketing stuff goes. Yeah, Kalenya. Um, so I learned that marketing that marketing middle grade is very hard. <laughs> and I don't think anybody who's listening would disagree with that. Um, but as an example, just talking about that, I was out selling top authors in the genre on Amazon and not in print, but traditionally published authors whose names you know, we would all recognize. And I was only making four or 500 a month and that wasn't sustainable. Um, and so I did a lot of research. I figured out how they were making money and I just, there was no way I'd ever have the time required. And so I decided to rewrite and relaunch the clinic chronicles as new books. And I paid better attention to the tropes. Uh, when I released that series initially, and we did talk about this in our, in our interview on the science fiction fantasy marketing podcast, but I released it in the middle of two different genres and and two different markets you know it was about a 14 year old instead of a 12 or 16 year old and so that just kind of made it a lot harder to target readers and so when i relaunched it i made him older and i changed basically the, the pace the way the story happened and um in seven years with the the Kalenia series out I made $7,000 total on that series. And then after relaunching and paying attention to the tropes and targeting a slightly, like slightly older audience, et cetera, all of that stuff, I made $8,000 in two months. And that was even with that big mistake I talked about in our last, in our interview where the covers were concerned. I was actually targeting urban fantasy readers with my covers when the books were teen epic fantasy. And so halfway through my relaunch, I recovered all of those books. And so I, and I, I mean, it did cause a little bit of a problem, but I still made $8,000 in the first two months. And that series is not my best selling series because there are other issues with it, but um, it still does very, very well. And it still does a whole ton better than it did before. And so, um, yeah, so it's always possible to, to retcon. Is that the word where, you know, you're like, okay, I did this wrong. Let's go back and make it better. And nothing's permanent. That's what I love about being an indie author. You can, you can pull a book down and, um, and relaunch it. It doesn't have to stay that way forever. Yeah, I'm a big uh, proponent of writing the story you want to write. And then, you know, when it's time to market, figure out like, okay, do I have any of those popular tropes that I can kind of highlight in the description, you know, and can I make the cover look like it really fits solidly in epic fantasy or, you know, whatever you're kind of, whichever genre you're kind of in. Um, are there anything, you know, I think you talked about in your notes that we can kind of fail to re meet our expectations without realizing it. Uh, what did you mean by that? Yeah, so that was what was going on with my Kalenia series before I relaunched it. Uh, it was well-reviewed. I had like 200 positive reviews on that first book, um, but it was still very difficult to sell. And the reason, I mean, there's always going to be someone who absolutely loves every single book you write, but one person who loves it or 200 people who love it versus the thousands who could love it if you were meeting their expectations, you know? So my books aren't written to market. My Mosaic Chronicles is my best-selling series and it's probably five or six genres mixed into one. And so what I recommended people do with that is pick which, you know, if there's like something that's doing really, really well right now, then pick that and target that audience, you know, the covers, the blurbs, the description, et cetera. Um, and then do that for a little while and then switch the next one that's doing well. And, um, but okay. So me, so meeting reader expectations. So there's a difference between understanding tropes and breaking them and writing a book without knowing what any of the expected tropes are. 
Um, so a more experienced author will know that this is what's expected in an, an urban fantasy, and then they can break those tropes because they understand why that is an expectation. And they're also more experienced. They probably have a lot more books out. And so it doesn't matter so much if they break those expectations. But in the beginning, um, it's, it's a lot harder to find an audience if you're starting out by doing that, unless you're, you know, I don't know, this is me talking from experience because like I said, none of my books are written to market except my romances. And so, but I still have found a way to make my book sell because if you're writing good books and you're doing it frequently enough, you, it doesn't matter if you're breaking all the tropes. Um, but sometimes authors don't know exactly what it is that they're writing. And when they finish writing it, they don't know how to market it. And so if you, what you put on the book cover is what will lead a reader to what, you know, they expect something. And so they're not, they're not. And I think it's funny that your, your reviewers or whatever, like this is, this is a science fiction, not a fantasy or whatever. Didn't they know going in that it wasn't going to be something that they'd enjoy as much. I mean, readers are very, they're smart and I'm sure they did, you know, but readers, their expectations. And so if you, how you present a book to them and if you get things right, it, make, it just makes things a lot easier in the end. Um, so if you're perfectly targeting an audience that you're writing for with covers and descriptions, marketing, et cetera, and you still aren't selling well, it's probably the writing, uh, which is usually based on reader expectations. So in my experience, authors who perfectly, perfectly target their books to the audiences, so they understand how to have a good book cover and how to write a good description, they're generally very good writers. And so, so they just don't exactly know what they're writing. And so understanding what readers are expecting in each different genre uh, makes things less of an uphill battle. Yeah. To that, I will add that uh, there's a difference between the tropes that define a genre and the things about a genre that you enjoy. Uh, I have on more than one occasion, once very successfully, once somewhat unsuccessfully, written something in a genre that I enjoy, but didn't really research the audience of and produced something that didn't hit the tropes that the audience actually seeks for, just hit the tropes that I liked. So, you know, if you're, if you're a big fan, that might not be good enough. You might actually have to read into the, to the structure. Um, all right, but uh, you've got some rules of thumb in your notes about how many books you should have before you start marketing. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I always tell authors they need to have at least five books in the same genre before they start marketing. Um, and if they want their marketing to go really well, they should have 10. That was before hearing Dean say he had 100 books before he started marketing. So now I'm advising authors they should have 100 books before they start marketing. <laughs> kidding about that, of course. Um, but if you don't have enough books for readers to consume, consume after they finish the book that you're promoting, you're basically wasting your time and money. You're putting a whole bunch of stuff into one book that you're just going to have to repeat over and over again later on down. Um, and so the thing, the thing about repeating, um, why it's a bad thing is because promotional websites lose effectiveness the more you use them on the same books. So later promotions don't do as well on that same book as they did as the first promotion. And I know this is especially true with BookBub and actually pretty much all of them. And so wait until you have enough books out. Um, produce content. Stop worrying about marketing. Stop worrying about making money and, and don't worry about things falling off, dropping off and falling apart. I mean, give yourself permission uh, to take a break from all of that and just produce content to just buckle down until you're truly ready to start marketing. And I know just watching the authors that I was talking to, it just that, that relief that they knew that they didn't need to worry about marketing just yet. It just, sometimes we need somebody to give us permission to do that. And if you desperately need the money, you're, you need to stop yourself before you start promo, um, promoting and pushing hard because you're more likely to make mistakes and waste money. If you're coming in from in a, in um, basically from a position of, of uh, desperation. And that's just watching in my experience with my clients and my own promoting. 
um, if you're struggling, you know, emotionally, you don't usually pull off a good promotional. And so it's, it's wasting your time and your money. Those are good points. And this is why one of the reasons I'm actually become a fan of the rapid release model of having three ready to go before I launch everything, anything. And that's not necessarily going to work for everybody, but if you write fairly quickly and can make that work, then you can promote on day one. And it makes sense because you have three books and can potentially, you know, like make the first one 99 cents and then have a bump up to 4.99 or something. But yeah, cause it's, you know, especially if you're launching it like 99 cents, you're just going to be spending so much money to promote that book. And then if there's nothing after it for them to buy, you're just in the hole. You cannot assume that if it's coming a year later with the next book that people, I mean, at least get them onto your mailing list, you know, have that set up with a, a short story or something to uh, get them on there. But it's going to be a lot better if you just wait to spend a whole lot of money until you do have at least three, I would say. I mean, if you can do five, even better. But um, that's going to depend on how prolific you are as an author. So you did uh, talk, give some tips for Facebook, Amazon, and BookBub, uh, the CPM, CPC ads. These are probably some of the, like you can spend thousands, but you can also get started on most of these for just a few dollars, like $5 a day or something. So they can be uh, good, especially when you're just starting with your first book or your first five books, if you're, <laughs> you're holding them back. Uh, any tips on those, each of those platforms for us? Okay, so the BookBub tips I actually got from our episode on BookBub because I haven't dipped into BookBub, but again, just make the price big, make it ugly and obvious. I think the word used was garish, um, and that stood out to me um, because I tend to want things to be pretty, but apparently pretty doesn't sell <laughs> except on the book cover. Um, but what I do is I sign up for the BookBub emails and then I see what other authors are doing. And then I aim for an average of that. So if all the authors are doing a certain color or if they're all doing like, you know, the book cover on a certain point part of the ad, then I do, I aim for that. Um, for Amazon target yourself. Um, I think I mentioned this before it's, it's, you keep those readers on your page. And I know that a lot of authors are now, they're recognizing that, um, use auto ads. And then I always test everything out through Facebook ads because Facebook ads are so much more exact and you can get a huge sampling really quickly and really easily. And so if, if you want to see if a specific blurb or hook will work, uh, test it out through Facebook ads first. And then Facebook, um, what I recommend people do with Facebook is to, and I've noticed that I have, I have two accounts. I've got my professional account and I've got my personal account and Facebook plug your ears. You're not supposed to know I have two accounts. Um, but on my personal one, okay. So on my professional one, I get targeted for all sorts of things, self-publishing related, which is not helpful when I want to know how other authors are doing things. And so on my personal one, I've actually gone and, um, I've liked author pages and genre related pages. So like urban fantasy lover, et cetera, and things like that. And I've liked those things on my personal one because it doesn't know I'm an author. So it doesn't target me with random random things for self-publishers. And I'm, I'm looking at you, Brian Cohen. I've been targeted so many times by your ads. <laughs> They're very good ads, by the way. Um, but so if you like an author page, like you go through and like, I like, you know, Patricia Briggs and um, Ilana is her name. Ilana Andrews, I think is her name. Um, I just, I liked all of those author pages. And then I, started getting targeted by their ads. And so I was able to see, okay, not their ads, but the other indie authors who are targeting those people as well. And so I started seeing what other authors were doing. And then I noticed that the ones have a lot of comments, a lot of likes, a lot of interaction. I'm like, okay, so those ones are working. And so I started trying those things out. And so 
when you're doing your cop, your Facebook ads, try all sorts of, all sorts of different copies. So like try your description, try your hook, just your hook and your call to action. Um, try random scenes from the book. Um, I've got one that has a 2000 page, uh, or 2000 page. That's a huge ad. 2000 word <laughs> excerpt in the, in the te you know, the text for the ad. And that's a really long ad, but readers like that. They appreciate that because it gets them into the story. So they're able to tell from a large sample that the book is going to be worth reading. Um, and then you can also do reader reviews where you only put the review in quotations and then one or two exciting um, sentences. You don't want to put a huge review in there or you can do combinations of all of these. And so test things out separately and just find out which ones work best for you. And sometimes Facebook ads don't convert, but I still use them for testing those things because that's helpful for say your description. If you find out that your hook gets more clicks than your full description, then maybe your description is not strong. Try it without the hook, you know, and just test things out like that. And since we teased it in the episode title or, or the intro, we should talk a little bit about marketing on a budget. Do you have any advice for those people who may be just scraping to get maybe a few dollars a day that they can use for their launch, uh, but hopefully we'll get some sales out of that? And I heard the dog. You should bring the dog onto the show more often. <laughs> She's letting me know it's about dinner time, so we should wrap it up pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so marketing on a budget. Um, have a plan and a goal. Um, you're more likely to waste money if you don't schedule in advance or if you don't know what you want and what you need to do to get there. And so if you have a schedule, a plan, a goal, all of that, then it's a lot easier to market on a budget. Um, and then networking with other authors so you can use, you know, word of mouth through authors, through readers. Um, and then, you know, just, just getting to know other people who are at the same level as you, and then you grow together. And as you each grow, you, you know, you grow together and you're able to help each other over years. And this is like a long-term thing. This is not, our goal isn't to be like a fantastically selling author for the short term. Our goal is to be a long-term successful author. And so building those relationships over the long term is a good thing and not just to, you know, get yourself benefits, but to mutually benefit, you know, so you can help them as well. And then I'm like, I've, I've said this before, offer download bonuses, and those are pretty much free. You just, you know, you can even do all the admin stuff on your own and email those to people, you know, when they send you a proof of purchase, but it's, it's free. You just write something and offer something for free. You know, it's, it's a great way to um, do marketing on a budget. Excellent. Um, all right. So you mentioned uh, that you use a combination of steady, uh, steady drip marketing and big promotions. And we've talked a bit about big promotions on the show already. So what do you use for your steady drip? I just couldn't un find the unmute button there. <laughs> um, okay. So I use Facebook and Amazon ads a lot, um, mostly Facebook ads for steady drip. So what I'll do with that is I, I monitor, I'll create an ad and I'll monitor it. Um, okay. So I usually create like four or five ads and I see, I compare the two, you know, the five to see which one is performing the best. And then I turn them all off except the one. And if it's doing well, I will let it run indefinitely. Um, I'll monitor every day for a while. And then I check them every couple of days. And then after a little while, I get to the point where I'm only checking every few weeks because they are, they've shown a long-term um, steady ROI. And this is a lot better, a lot easier to do if you have a full series for, for readers to go and download after. Um, and so your ROI will be higher. And then it's easier to have an ad that performs, and I'm doing hands again, um, performs well sometimes and doesn't perform as well other times. You can, you can actually swallow those discrepancies. Um, 
so, and then, like I said, giveaways with readers targeted through Facebook ads. And so I'll do that on King Sumo. Um, um, and I use that as a, like a list building technique. Uh, King Sumo is fantastic, but you can also do uh, steady drip list building, which leads into steady drip marketing. Because as you, as you're slowly adding people to your list, you can be slowly getting more downloads. You can be getting more reviews, things like that. Um, basically everything should feed into your newsletter list. Um, and okay. So King Sumo, actually they have a WordPress plugin that's like $200, but they have a free website version now. And it's, I, one of the, um, authors, I think his name was Richard was talking about it quite extensively at the conference and I need to go and look that up. But I think I, that's absolutely fantastic because I'm not a WordPress person. Um, and it, that was the only reason I created a website on WordPress was just for King Sumo. And it's, I absolutely love King Sumo. And so if they have an, an online version, that is really fantastic. But like I was saying, everything should feed into your newsletter list because once you get people to subscribe, getting reviews is easy, getting downloads is easier. Um, and that leads to the steady drip marketing. All right, cool. It's funny. I, I made a note just King Sumo for myself to look up and then Lindsay drops in basically telling you to clarify on that. So that's why she's the primary host, <laughs> uh, at least compared to me. So next we're going to talk a little bit about hiring help and running a small business. Uh, uh, there was some talk about interns and volunteers. Uh, what sort of jobs are okay for unpaid folks? And was there any discussion about how heavily or how long someone can rely upon unpaid help? Okay, so there's a little bit of um, of a discussion on this that happened. They didn't talk so much about what you can have them do, but they talked about whether or not you should be using them. Um, so somebody, um, what Kevin J. Anderson's, um, he had he had a person from his business on the panel. Her name was Marie, and she said that they work with volunteers a lot. Um, like I said, I didn't actually cast, catch what they had volunteers to do, but do, but they've had success using volunteers. And then on the other hand, Dean stressed that volunteers, it's a trap that you can fall into. And he says it's easy for people to accept help from volunteers um, because you don't have to pay them. But eventually a lot of volunteers start thinking, they get entitled, he said. And so they start expecting to be paid and they even ask to be paid. And he says that if people volunteer make sure they know they will always be a volunteer and um, because relationships change and their duties change. And sometimes what they're doing isn't necessarily they're doing value for you, but it's not necessarily worth having them paid over. And um, um, he talked about how you need to make sure that these people are somebody that you can easily let go if they start messing up your business or if they're doing something that will cause problems in the short term or in the long term. Volunteers are hard to fire because you aren't paying them. And a lot of the time they're people that you genuinely, genuinely like. Um, and so that's, an, that's another point of the trap. He says, you know, don't hire people that you, you are friends with you know, outside of this because it can lead to problems in your relationship. And then a lot of the time, uh, volunteers, they can actually cost you time and money because they're costing you time because you're having to manage them so much. Um, but where interns are concerned, they did say that they're great for testing out future employees. Um, I would approach it personally the same way you would approach hiring an assistant by handing off small projects to them at first and then getting bigger and bigger as they show what they're able to do and as they show that you can trust them. 
So I would definitely be on the side of uh, wanting to pay people and then wanting to get people who already have experience doing the thing, <laughs> you know, so um, that'd be the way I would go. But um, I will say that I think volunteers, if you've got like a Facebook group, like a reader group or something like that, and a couple of people kind of have that natural admin personality and they're on there all the time, that might be a, you know, an okay place to say like, hey, do you want to be the admin of my Facebook group? Uh, you know, but uh, I, I like paying people well and hopefully they will, you know, because then they prioritize you too. You know, they're like, well, uh, like my editor always makes room for me. <laughs> I don't know if she's shoving in any other clients around, but, uh, you know, I think when you pay well and have a long-term relationship with them that, you know, it, it there's a reward there. But, uh, it, it, you know, I think that's nice that they talked about that and that it would be a possibility. And I know you've actually got an assistant, Andrea. You said she took notes for you at the conference. So did you have any good takeaways as far as hiring? You know, a lot of authors, once you get a pretty big catalog and have a lot of stuff going on, maybe looking for a virtual assistant or, you know, personal assistant who you know in your own town. Um, so... Okay. So I, I don't know, like it's, it just depends on what your philosophy is with me. I'm just with my kids and everything. I just got super stressed and got to the point where I needed to hire on an assistant. Um, but some, some of the authors who attended there, they said, don't hire them until you have a very clear cut way to be able to afford them. And I'm, we live our lives debt-free, my husband and I do. Um, and I don't advocate, you know, taking on debt to get an assistant, but we borrowed from our personal lives. And this sounds familiar. I think I talked about this when we did an interview with me, but we borrowed from our personal lives to help pay for an assistant. And she totally pays herself back now. Uh, she's saved me so much time. Um, but one thing that they did mention was that if you are their only client, then that person is technically considered an employee and you need to look at the laws in your state and see how, what the ramifications for that would be for you. Um, and I seriously wish I'd actually heard this panel before the seven assistants. I actually worked with seven people before I found Adriel and I fired all of them. And some of them were friends. Some of them were just random people. I was like, I'll just train them. You know, Adriel came trained. <laughs> that was, that was wonderful for me. Yes, it's a lot of work to train someone. That's why I've kind of resisted it. But there are actually people out there now of self-publishing has been a thing for long enough that there are, you can go hunting around and there are experienced author assistants that, uh, you know, they may have, may work like 10 hours a week for four different people. So you can hop in there. I've always heard it suggested that you should avoid trying to take on a full-time employee. I mean, obviously, if you're getting to the point where you're starting a publishing company and that uh, doing, you know, well, they do five, however many books they do just between the two of them. But, you know, like, uh, if you're going to start publishing other authors and that, that may become something you have to do. Did they have any thoughts of like, whether it ever makes sense to take on a full-time employee and presumably pay them benefits if they're in the U.S., <laughs> which probably would be the reason you would not hire someone from the U.S. Um, or just, you know, do, go through that whole route and figure out how to do it um, as a solo author slash publisher. Um, they, they're not big on hiring full-time employees because most authors don't make enough money to be able to afford them. Um, so they said, they talked about how it's more important to have contracted people that you work with because then it's clear cut up ahead of time, what, what they'll be doing and how much you'll be paying them. And there's a time limit generally, not a time limit, like saying, you know, I mean, there's like deadlines, but not saying that somebody can only work with you for a certain amount of time, but a contracted person is very well-defined what they'll be doing and how much you'll be paying them. And so they put that ahead of hiring a full-time employee. But I mean, if you're like, like Lindsay, like you said, if you're starting a publishing business 
or actually not starting one. If you run a publishing business that is successful and you can justify hiring a full-time employee, then um, I don't see why that would be an issue. You know, eventually, if that's where your, your goal is to go, then eventually you're going to need help. I think the another reason to stay with different people doing different things is you know, you're going to need different areas of expertise. Usually so the same person that's going to design your covers may not be a, the person that can run your Facebook ads probably is not. So, you know, I, 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 cause I certainly outsource a lot of stuff. Like I don't proof listen to my own audiobooks and things like that, but I just haven't hired any particular person to be full-time or regular, uh, you know, a certain amount of hours a week. And I, I think there are, you know, it is very possible just to kind of go job by job and, position by position. I, I know a lot of people are still hoping to find someone to take over their ads, but I don't think I've talked to anybody yet that's handed that off to someone and been completely pleased with the results and stuck with it long-term. If it is happening, it's pretty rare. All right, but I guess let's close up. We've been talking for over an hour. Imagine that, us talking for an hour. <laughs> Who would have known when this show started? Uh, we are going to go ahead and do next week's show will be kind of uh, the second half of this. So, and then I will be at Nink, not Nink, 20 books to 50K. <laughs> the conferences are all blurring together next week. If you listen to this in time and if you see me there, just say hi and remind me who you are because I have a horrible memory and I also can't recognize faces. I am awesome at recognizing the people who have podcasts because I apparently am good with voices, but I can't recognize faces. So um, I look forward to seeing you guys there. And thank you, Andrea, for letting us just grill you <laughs> for the whole hour plus here. And I guess that's everything. Um, you know, thanks for listening, everyone. Please visit sixfigureauthors.com with the number six if you want to leave a comment or ask a question for a future show. And if you can hop over to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or, you know, I didn't know Google Podcasts was a thing until last week, but uh, <laughs> it is, and leave a review. We would definitely appreciate that. Appreciate that. And thank you so much for everyone who's already mentioned the show in, in Facebook groups and on their own show. Super appreciate that. And I will stop talking now. Thank you, everyone. And have an awesome week. Bye. So long, everybody. <laughs>